From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, welcoming you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history, with a nod to all things Southern. Today, Alfred Turner and I will talk with Dr. Bernard Powers about the establishment of the International African American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina. Bernie Powers is Professor Emeritus of History at the College of Charleston and is Director of the College's Center for the Study of Slavery in Charleston. He is also on the Board of Directors of the International African American Museum. Bernie is in a unique position to tell the story of the museum as he has been involved with the efforts to create the institution from the start 23 years ago. Bernie will talk with us about these efforts, the evolution of the concept behind the museum, and about some of the stories that the museum strives to tell. Dr. Bernie Powers, it is wonderful to have you back again on the journal to talk about the International African American Museum in Charleston. It's a project that you were involved with from its very inception, and then you kind of wrote me in a little bit later. <laughs> well, well, Walter, let me thank you for your kind invitation to join you. It's always my, my pleasure to be with you on this wonderful show. And uh, yes, it's been quite a project, 23 years in the making, and, and uh, you worked along with us at the beginning. So it's been a, uh, a labor of love, and lots of people have, uh, have had their hands on the project. Well, they have, and I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, mention former Mayor Joe Riley, who uh, spearheaded it. And I can remember uh, my wife and I were actually on a beach vacation, and he somehow tracked me down on a cell phone <laughs> and said, uh, Professor, I'm forming this board. I need you to help. And I said, of course, sir. I'll, I'll be glad to help. And I was over the years, thanks to you, I did some consulting with the, with the museum and served there on, on its board. And I think we need to let our listeners know a little bit more about you, Bernie. Sure. He joined the College of Charleston faculty in 1992. His great book, Black Charlestonians, came out in 94, and he was on the faculty there. He is currently the director of the Center for the Study of Slavery in Charleston. He's also still a board member of the museum, and at one point before it came into existence permanently, he was acting director. So uh, you have been intimately involved with this project for nearly a quarter of a century. Well, yeah, that's that's really that's really something when you when you put it in those terms. Yeah, it's been a great project to be involved in, and it it's provided me with some opportunities to take the information and some of the strategies that I employed in the classroom and adapt them to a different environment for similar but uh, but but in a lot of ways different purposes. So it's well, been exciting. It is exciting. And I think we need to talk a little bit about why the location itself was chosen, Gadsden's Wharf. Sure, sure, sure. And Gadsden's Wharf is right on the Cooper River, downtown Charleston, really in the historic district. The wharf itself was terribly important, uh, constructed by Christopher Gadsden, a well-known and very successful merchant, a revolutionary era leader, uh, at one point a member 
of the Continental Congress. I think at one point he was also lieutenant governor of the state of South Carolina. So a very accomplished man, a patriot during that era of the American Revolution. And this wharf will become important for a couple of standout reasons that I think of. And number one, after the American Revolution was over with and the British leave, one of the things that happens, and this is something that most people know nothing about, and we try to highlight this at the museum, uh, when the British leave, they take thousands of black loyalists with them. And it's estimated 25,000 enslaved persons. That's how much the population declined yeah. with, with the British leaving. That's right. That's right. And so these are people who had assisted the British on their side uh, during the American Revolution. And they, they leave. Many of them leave with the British in 1782, before the, uh, before the treaty was actually signed. Yeah. And these people go to a number of places. Some end up going to the Caribbean, and unfortunately, some of those people were sold back into slavery. But a number of others go to the uh, eastern portion of Canada, the maritime provinces, and uh, some will make their way to England, and some actually uh, eventually go to West Africa, become a part of the settlement of Sierra Leone. So what that means, Walter, is that the door at Gadsden's War figuratively swung open to freedom for large numbers of African Americans at this time that evacuated with, with the Brits. But also, that was a door that we know uh, enslaved people entered South Carolina through and eventually traveled to other, to other colonies. And this is the place when the transatlantic slave trade finally ends to the United States, to the whole country. This is the place, Gazin's Wharf, where the trade ended specifically in all the other major metropolitan areas and ports, the trade was already over with, but it continued here in Charleston. And not just Charleston, this specific part of Charleston where the trade had been restricted is where it ends, January 1, 1808. Well, Bernie, this, this leads me to ask a question. Why did it end other places and not here? Well, Alfred, there are several reasons. First of all, there's a provision in the Constitution that nothing would be done to interfere with the external slave trade until 1807. Mm -hmm. And so South Carolina, interestingly enough, after the revolution, had banned the external slave trade until 1803. And then all of a sudden, literally a flood of enslaved persons, some 40,000 came through Gadsden's Wharf in a four-year period. Wow. I mean, that it literally there would not have been a day when enslaved persons were not being taken off a ship. And when people think about a wharf today, they think about a pier going out. Mm-hmm. This was mm-hmm. actually parallel to the river. Yeah. And at one point, six ships could line up one after the other and unload. So we're talking about a major yeah. transportation entrepot. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And of course, it was during the period of the Constitution uh, making 
it was the South Carolinians and the Georgians who opposed the ending of the transatlantic slave trade because they realized that uh, they had a tremendous need for labor given the nature of their economies, uh, rice culture, and its demands. And so other Lots of other places did not have the same kind of demand. And, and even in the upper south at this time, uh, the Chesapeake in particular, the economies there were undergoing a major shift from tobacco to other less labor-intensive crops, cereal items, corn, mm-hmm. wheat, and so on. And so in the upper south, the demand for slave labor was diminishing at the same time that in South Carolina it it was and would continue to to increase, particularly with the introduction of cotton culture in addition to, to rice. And, of course, one of the end results of all of this is that by the time you get to 1860, South Carolina, it's very heavily African-American. 60% of the population of South Carolina is is African-American. And that demographic statistic would have a, a big play in terms of the politics and culture of the state. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Walter, I'm not sure that that fundamental demographic characteristic of South Carolina is being taught in the public schools because to to teach that raises the question, well, 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 why was that? And then you have to get into the institution of slavery and the peculiar needs of rice culture and so on and so forth. So uh, that is, that is a, a feature of life in South Carolina that really defines us until the early 20th century for the most part. In fact, for most of its history, a majority of its history, South Carolina has been a black majority yes. state. In a brief period from 1790, the first census, until 1820 census, it was a white majority. Mm-hmm. But from 1820 until 1922, South Carolina was a majority African-American population. That's right. That's right. And, and, and Walter... This is something that helps explain secession and why it starts in South Carolina, that 60% black majority. And here's another dimension of this. The South Carolina political leaders knew what had happened in Haiti, San Domingue, Haiti, because lots of the refugees from the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, would flee, and they would come to a number of the major port cities in the United States. And many of them would come to Charleston. And with them, they brought the memories of the revolution, the bloodletting, and all of that that occurred in the wake of African people liberating themselves there. And they passed those memories on. And they were very much still alive uh, in the era, in the years just preceding the American Civil War. And we know that lots of South Carolina politicians referred to the possibility of Haiti occurring in South Carolina And so given that level of fear and apprehension, when Abraham Lincoln is elected 
And he was characterized as only a more subtle version of John Brown. White South Carolinians decided the best way to preserve their lives was to leave the nation. And, and, and that's why it happened first in South Carolina within weeks of Abraham Lincoln's election. All right, let's talk about the museum because I remember in the early days there was a lot of discussion, well, it's going to be different. It's not going to be like the Charleston Museum, but, you know, for black folks and we're going to have all these artifacts and what have you. And then as as discussions went along, it became much more imaginative and the use of modern technology uh, came into play. So you want to pick that Yes, yes. Uh, in fact, Walter, at one point, we thought that there would be very few actual artifacts in the museum, that the visitor would mainly experience the stories that we wanted to tell by and through audio-visual means, and essentially the, the representation of objects by visual means, projected means, and and so on, and virtually. But we realized that people really come to museums to see actual things and actual objects. And so that led to a change in course and a decision to uh, try to collect some specific objects that really reflected very well the experience that that we wanted the visitor to have and the stories that we wanted to tell at the museum. So uh, the museum is never going to have a large warehouse where artifacts are pulled out once every five or ten years and made available to the public. Uh, the space is not available for that. And that's, and that's not the way that we want to manage things. And so there are, there are select objects today that are representative, that are exciting to see. One of the things that I, that I think about is this. We have, we have a couple of Dave jars in the museum. One the museum owns and the other uh, is on loan to the, to the museum. Let's let's tell people who Dave is real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, David Drake, as he is sometimes known, an enslaved person over in Edgefield who was one of the most talented potters in 19th century America whose works today are considered not just folk art, they're considered art and are highly collectible uh, and highly valued. And he also, right. did he not also uh, sometimes versify, if I might, yes. on some of his pots? That's right. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yes. He, uh, sometimes it was poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it was just a saying. But this enslaved person from Edgefield County uh, has literally become now an international figure in terms of art collecting. That's right. That's right. That's right. And he's so important as a representative of an industry that we really do not typically associate with the institution of slavery, and that's pottery making. But uh, over there in Edgefield, there was an industrial level of manufacturing of, uh, of pottery in that, in that area and done by and through the use of enslaved labor. But beyond that, yes, the, the, the notion that Dave 
was able to write. And not just merely write, but sometimes these catchy sayings, witticisms mm-hmm. on his, his products uh, really make him stand out, but also tells us something else about the institution of slavery, too, because we know that the laws prohibited uh, enslaved people from learning how to read and write. But nevertheless, there are plenty of examples where uh, it's clear that they did have those skills. And, and sometimes it was in the master or mistress's best interest to have the enslaved person know how to read and write. But at any rate, we know that sometimes they were able to acquire literacy, and this is just one example. All right. What are some of the other objects that help tell the story? Another one that, uh, yeah, that's very, very compelling, and that's uh, an object that's known as Ashley's Sack. Yes. Yes. And uh, let me let me see if I can uh, remember the story, Walter. You may have to help me a bit. Okay, I, I do know some of the story. First mm-hmm. of all, it came, it came from middle through Middleton Place. Yes, a young enslaved woman was evidently sold off, and her mother made this sack in the stitching. Basically, told her story so she would not forget who she was. Well, the stitching comes later. Oh, the stitching comes later. Yeah, yeah, the stitching comes later. This is, I believe, the 1850s. But the the mother gave uh, Ashley, the child who was being sold off, she was like nine years old. Mm -hmm. And there were objects that the mother put in that sack. A lock of her own, the mother's hair, uh, some pecans, a dress, and some other objects to help Ashley remember her mother and the experiences that they shared in common. And Ashley took the sack, and it was eventually handed down uh, through the family. And one of Ashley's descendants, I think her granddaughter, Mm -hmm. perhaps, then inscribed the story of the sack on it. Uh, going back to the sale and the mother's deposit. And then the sack just it disappeared, and it was purchased by someone in recent years in the midst of a, a bunch of rags at a flea market. And the woman who purchased it saw the Middleton name on it and contacted Middleton Place making a connection and it was accepted as a donation at Middleton Place, subsequently displayed at the National Museum of African American History and now we have it at the International uh, African American Museum in Charleston. That's on a wall that is called the Voices of the enslaved, the voices of the enslaved, and really speaks to the strength of black families despite the pressures that they were subjected wow. to through, yeah. through sale. So it's a very compelling object. Does the museum have any way of helping black Americans trace their family roots? Yes, yes. In fact, there is a whole section of the museum, a large area called the Center for Family History. 
And physically, that area is in the western extremity of the museum. The museum is shaped in a rectangular form. The eastern end of the museum has everything to do with the transatlantic slave trade and the consequences. The western end is really framed at the, at the extreme western end by the Center for Family History. So I like to think of it in this way. The Africans who were imported and came into Gadsden's Wharf on the eastern side over there, they were ripped away from their families and kinship groups in West Africa and Central Africa. And we tell that story. But down at the western end of the museum, the Center for Family History will help African Americans to discover, rediscover, repair and consolidate the pieces of their genealogy, uh, repairing what happened through the transatlantic slave trade, as well as the domestic slave trade, which which flourished internally uh, during the antebellum period, and Charleston was a major hub of that. That's, yeah. That is something that folks often forget. As the agricultural sectors of the Chesapeake changed, Virginia and Maryland planters sold their slaves south to Charleston and eventually all the way to Mobile and New Orleans. So an enslaved person's forebears may have started in this country in Virginia, but then they come to South Carolina. Absolutely. You know, as important as the history is that we've been talking about so far, I find this idea of the the family anchoring one end of the museum, the the descendants of the enslaved Africans, and helping people connect with that. I I find that to be just absolutely one of the most compelling things. And I did not know that this was happening. Thank you for sharing that. Sure, sure. And, And so there are people at that end of the museum that are, that are trained in genealogy and uh, will be able to help patrons when they come in. But also, there are virtual workshops that the center has been offering for a couple of years now. And so people around the nation have been able to avail themselves of this very important resource, uh, even if they're not in the area and uh, even if they have no intentions of coming to the museum. And Bernie, let's give the full name of the center. Yeah, it is the Center for Family History. And it's a part of the International African American Museum. Good. And uh, and I want to point out that uh, the person who really helped us set this up is uh, Tony Carrier, uh, who really built this up from from the ground. And she is very well known for the work that she has done mm-hmm. in the area of African American genealogy, particularly in South Carolina and especially in the Low Country. Tony set this up, but uh, but she has gone into retirement now. Well, you mentioned that, that this has been going on for several years, but the official opening of the museum just happened in 2023. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So the museum opened its doors at the end of June, and uh, there have been lots of lots of visitors and uh, lots of lots of young people coming to the museum also and. 
People from around the country have, have and, been coming. And it's gotten wonderful national press. National Geographic did a, a lengthy story on it. The New York Times, the Washington Post. To me, it gave, having been associated with the museum, a lot of satisfaction in these articles about, this is happening in South Carolina. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. That's right. And some of the stories, and I think particularly the National Geographic story pointed about, you've got the museum, but you have places, sites like Middleton Place, who have completely reinterpreted their own history in the, in the light of uh, research. Yes, and reaching out to the African American community. That's right. That's right. So uh, that's a that's a very interesting and important story, Walter, and and it, and it's part of my own personal experience too, uh, because I think back to the very first time that I went out to Fort Sumter. It would have been 1976, and the park ranger during the the uh, the boat ride out there provided a lecture, and uh, it mainly focused on the coming of the Civil War, preparing you to tour the fort. And Walter, in 1976, there was nothing said about the role of slavery in the coming of the war. It was all about uh, competing economic systems and a different uh, northern uh, compared to southern culture and, and, and states' rights, for example. Nothing about slavery. That's completely changed now. The Visitor's Center for Fort Sumter uh, has, a, has a very detailed presentation on the role that slavery played in, in the coming of the American Civil War. And, uh, and I'm proud to say that one of my former undergraduate uh, students was involved in uh, drafting the script. The basis for that are the documents passed by the secession convention in South Carolina, where they specifically talk about that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, which I found over time, some people just think, oh, well, you historians made this up. I said, no, read them. That's right. It's yeah. not what I said. It's what absolutely. the men, and it was the men of the secession convention, said. Yes, absolutely. They're, they're very words. And, and, and you can see those, those very words in a number of the secession ordinances and explanations for the the various uh, uh, Confederate states. So that's what we're doing at the museum. We are telling the rest of the story. We are talking about those elements that contribute to the American Revolution that have have to do with race, for example. When, when you get to that section of the museum, which is a part of what we call the American Journey, and the American Journey is a U-shaped gallery in the western end of the museum, and it looks at the intersection of South Carolina, African American, and U.S. history, and the way in which those three are intertwined very deeply. And you get to the section, little section on the American Revolution, and there's a big quote by Dr. Samuel Johnson, very famous quote, which says, why is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty from the drivers of Negroes? So there are so many aspects of, of U.S. history that are, that are tied directly to, to this place. If you think about the Isaac Woodard story, which we, which we tell at the museum, a very 
tragic story of a black South Carolina World War II vet returning home in 1946. And uh, he got into an argument with a bus driver and the sh- uh, sheriff from Batesburg, South Carolina, ended up uh, pulling him off of the bus, beating him unmercifully, blinding him in both eyes. And he was in uniform. Yes, and he was. He was in uniform, d- coming back from the Pacific. Yes. This, this sad story is brought to the attention of President Truman, Harry Truman, who was outraged by this, that this could become the fate of an American GI in the U.S. And it's almost unbelievable that Harry Truman had an investigation, a federal investigation, uh, indicted the sheriff, but an all-white jury acquitted him. And this really opened Harry Truman's eyes to the need for civil rights protection, greater civil rights protection in the country. And this white Southern president then creates a civil rights commission, which made recommendations for civil rights improvements, legislation, and policies. And Harry Truman sponsors uh, calls for legislation and supports it. It's just amazing, you know. Most people think of civil rights presidents as either Kennedy or Johnson, but it's actually Harry Truman, based on what had happened to Isaac Woodard in South Carolina, who became the first uh, American president to promote a slate of civil rights legislation. Yeah. It's amazing. He got the ball rolling. He, yes. got, he got the Ab- ball. Absolutely. And, and of course, he, he by executive order, the desegregation of the armed forces. That's it right. did not. It did not happen very easily. That's right. Uh, but that that again goes back to the Isaac Woodard case. Coming on the heels of that, of course, you've got Briggs versus Elliott, where what Judge Wade is wearing said in his minority opinion uh, that segregation per se is discrimination. That's right. Uh, that phrase, of course, appears in the Brown decision when it was made. Yes, 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 absolutely. So those those civil rights heroes in Clarendon County, South Carolina, really blazed the path for civil rights, desegregation in much of the rest of the nation because people were energized by Brown, and they applied it to other areas of life outside of education, mm-hmm. public transportation, for example. You can you can take Brown right to Rosa Parks, mm-hmm. uh, and people talk about Rosa Parks, and Rosa Parks is terribly important. But Rosa Parks tells us that she was energized, she was given confidence, and the wherewithal to be as successful and as determined as she was once she studied with Septima Clark, the educational and civil rights activist from Charleston, who really cut her eye teeth in activism in 1918-1919, uh, working along with the NAACP branch in Charleston to create uh, the opportunity for black teachers to teach black students in the city of Charleston, and they won that opportunity. I hate to say this, but we need to wrap up soon. Bernie, any last words before we wrap up today? 
Well, uh, Walter, I want to encourage people. The International African American Museum, newly opened, they will find stories there that they are familiar with, but they'll find a lot of new information that they're unfamiliar with, and even the individuals that that they are familiar with that 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 they'll encounter. We use them very frequently in different ways to display other aspects of their lives, their activism, their contributions that people are are not familiar with. So it's an international story. Uh, it uh, it's important because it brings together American history, South Carolina history, and all Americans can benefit from. Uh, making that trip and making that journey. Thank you for having me on the program again. Well, Bernie, it's our pleasure. And um, what you have put into this museum and into history in South Carolina, you work with the Historical Society, incredible contributions. Thank you for all you have done, and thank you for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It's always a pleasure to talk with Bernie Powers, especially about the history of South Carolina. And today, we covered a lot of that history. Some of what we talked about was difficult, dealing with the international slave trade, the central role of Charleston, South Carolina in that trade, and with the Civil War, its aftermath, and the struggle of African Americans to win their civil rights. But talking with Bernie about the establishment of the International African American History Museum on Gadsden's Wharf in the heart of Charleston and about the stories it brings to life, I think there's so much to celebrate. And all of these stories are part of South Carolina history. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Remember, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org on the SCETV app, as well as your favorite podcast provider. We'll talk again soon. We'll talk again soon.